It's Friday, November 21st, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Last night, President Obama laid out his plan to take executive action on the issue of illegal immigration. He talked about the people who law enforcement should be targeting and who they shouldn't. Felons, not families. Criminals, not children. Gang members, not a mom who's working hard to provide for her kids. Well, sure, yes. All the felons, criminals, gang members should be targeted. They're all the same thing, by the way. You get no debate there. And in a way, that's the lowest of low-hanging fruit to show that you're even-handed on the issue. It's like saying, yeah, there are some illegal immigrants that I define as illegal. They happen to be the ones who commit acts that are illegal when even citizens commit them. Then the president went on to say, We need more than politics as usual when it comes to immigration. We need reasoned, thoughtful, compassionate debate that focuses on our hopes, not our fears. So here's my problem with the immigration debate. I don't need to be convinced to have compassion. If anything, I need to be given some guidelines about how to temper my compassion. Because intellectually, I know open borders will not work. They just won't work. And open borders for all but gang members, criminals, and felons, those won't work either. Today in the Times, Paul Krugman wrote, it's a simple matter of human decency. But no, it's not simple at all. Because I know that at some point the system cannot take everyone in the world who would like to come here if they could. So what do I do about that? And what do I do about that and still have decency and compassion? I guess if I asked the president, he would say, that's exactly what I believe too. And this plan that I'm putting forth, that is the reasonable, compassionate plan. But I bet Paul Ryan would also say that too. And I don't disbelieve him. I don't think he's racist. I don't think he has hatred for the immigrant. Some do hate the immigrants, some people are racist, some sneer, what part of illegal don't you understand? Some call people illegals, even though that's an adjective, not a noun. They're wrong, but it's also wrong to think that the motives of everyone working to cap illegal immigration are impure. So give me some ethical guidance on that, won't you? Luckily on the show today, I'm only going to concern myself with much easier questions like how many Elmos make a quorum and why Pizza Hut is abandoning the idea of pizza when it should shut out the hut. But first, the moderator of Meet the Press seeks to explain a man who comes up from time to time on his show. The new book is The Stranger, Barack Obama in the White House. And now here's my conversation with Chuck Todd. President Obama is open-minded. No, he dithers. He's contemplative. No, he's too much in his own head. He's judicious. No, he lacks fire in the belly. He's intellectual. No, he's disengaged. There's a lot about the dualities of Obama that really are unfair criticism, like saying he's an acolyte of Jeremiah Wright. No, he's a secret Muslim. Both those things can't be true. But on the issues of comportment or makeup or maybe character, there is a sphinx-like nature to him. I attribute this to three things. One, he's human. Two, humans contain contradictions. Three, He's probably the most scrutinized human being in the world today, with the possible exception of Lena Dunham. But host Chuck Todd of NBC's Meet the Press has a big, expansive book that really does try to explain and understand Obama, and it does so by scrutinizing policy and looking at the man. Hello, Chuck. How are you? I'm well. So I'll start with this. What's the biggest thing people get wrong about the character of Barack Obama? Um, That he's a risky guy. I mean, I think he's an incredibly cautious person, and I think that both people that get upset because he doesn't do things that are progressive enough and people on the right who get upset with him, it all comes down to he's just a pretty cautious guy. 
And is this part of what you document, how he's an observer, how he's the child of an anthropologist, how he's removed? Are they related? Yeah, I mean, you know, and I think some people will, you know, hit me for, you know, doing too much psychoanalysis on that. But, I mean, I think we're always a product of, of sort of, of our upbringing. And, and I thought you made a very good point in the introduction. You know, um, his, President Obama's biggest flaw is that he's a human being, as far as some people are concerned. So let's take war in Afghanistan. I think you really document... The decision that he ultimately came to about troops would have been the decision that McCain would have come to, Hillary Clinton would have come to, about 40,000 troops. But he took so long to make a decision. And that, I think, is a pretty fair, you can pretty fairly call what he did dithering. Well, especially when you look back on it, and it's the more I reported on it, the more I've dug into this, the, the longer I go, the more I'm convinced he was never convinced he made the right decision. It left enough scar tissue. I think that's why... He has been so much more resistant to the Pentagon's demands on going after ISIS and so much comfortable being resistant about it because I think he definitely feels as if he was pushed into the search. And I think about ISIS, I think that there's so much of the criticism that's unfair. Obviously, the Hawks in Congress are going to call him weak. But the analogy I think of is your football team's down by five and it's fourth and one from the other team's goal line. You got to go for it. You choose to pass, it doesn't work. Now, you're going to get scrutinized, you're going to get criticized, but not only is there no proving that a run would have worked instead of a pass, mm-hmm. there might be tons of evidence that a run would have been much worse, and I think that's the position that he's in. Had he funded the moderate rebels, as now everyone says, really? CIA came out with a report that that almost never works. It's funny, he doesn't get criticized for something that I, I can't, that, that to me should, is going to be open for a longer debate, and that was the decision to topple Qaddafi without a plan to sort of set Libya back up after Qaddafi was gone and not being more, and it's obviously it's a mistake he, he now acknowledges, but you could argue that's what led to his decision on Syria or his extra caution on Syria after the red line. Yeah, and I think that's because the only paradigm in Washington or the only paradigm that gets noticed is, you know, hawk dove, action appeaser, strong weak. Right, when there is something that was a lot more subtle and a lot more nuanced about what he thought he was getting into. Look, I actually think over time he's going to, you can't ever acknowledge, in Washington we have a problem, you can't ever acknowledge mistakes in real time, you have to sort of wait. Yeah. You, you, you acknowledge them too soon, and you can politically put yourself in peril. But the handling of the Arab Spring, or the misreading of the Arab Spring, by everybody, by the way, not just by the Obama administration, but think European allies and, and things like that, I think sort of figuring out how to manage the Middle East post-Arab Spring continues to be a challenge. That's true. But you know what? That's another fourth and one from the one situation, too. You can't prove what the best way would have been. And then there are some nations like Tunisia where things kind of worked out. Right. Now, for every Tunisia, there's Egypt and Libya. That's right. I think that that is a, in the Muslim world, that's actually an idiom. Um, (laughs) So we're skipping around, but I want to go to, he gets reelected. This confounded me. He expects the Republicans will stop being the party of consistent opposition. Uh, The phrase you use is, he expects the fever will have broken, not mm-hmm. just in retrospect, but how could he have thought that? Doesn't he see that this is the Republican strategy that's working for them? Be a game theorist here. Uh, look, I think he's misread the Republicans a lot. And I think in the biggest misread, he put himself in the shoes of Mitt Romney and John McCain and trying to figure out how did they lose, rather than putting themselves in the shoes of a member of Congress who doesn't have to worry about swing voters. And think about it. John Boehner almost spoke that way. Think about the interview right after the election when he says Obamacare's law of the land, yeah. and then within three weeks, his job's in jeopardy. 
Well, I think the election changes that. It's pretty clear that the president was reelected. Obamacare uh, is the law of the land. You know, even John Boehner misread it. So how much blame then redounds on Plouffe, on Axelrod, on Emmanuel, the guys who are supposed to fill in the gaps of Obama? Not everyone could be perfect. You know, Obama never came in claiming he knew how to get bills through Congress and was the greatest greatest politician. As you say, he's political, but inexpert in politics. So what about, you know, his lieutenants in that area? I think if you look back and you look back at the places where he had opportunities, I think, to make a mark in Washington that was a mark of change, a mark of saying, you know, I'm the new sheriff in town, were times when he worried too much about the interests and the needs of congressional Democrats. Yeah. So it goes back to, you know, you, you threw in all those guys together. You know, there was an early story that I tell about a, a spending bill that Pelosi and David Obey, who was appropriations chair at the time in the House, they were saving for the new Democratic president to sign. They were basically holding it. It should have been sent. It was Bush's last budget. It should have been sent to Bush to be signed, but they waited because they wanted to load it up with more goodies. Had a whole bunch of earmarks, and President Obama had said when he's president, he wasn't going to sign bills like this. So he had some of the campaign guys that went to the White House, Axelrod and Gibbs, telling them, you should veto this. Send a message. Rahm Emanuel, Jim Messina, the Washington guys were telling them, don't start a fight with Congress. This is what Bill Clinton did, and he never got health care through. So grin and bear it. The best way to get the president to make a decision that you want him to make is to make the case that this is the least risky decision for now. You'll have another bite at the apple later. From then on, it sent a message that they were they could dictate terms more often than the White House did. And if you look at how health care was managed, that's a bill that in hindsight the White House wished they managed that bill and not let Congress do it. But they sort of let Congress have a lot more power in that first year. Again, I would argue they overlearned the lessons. It was Rahm Emanuel overlearning the lessons of those ones. The box that he's in this week with immigration mm-hmm. is a box that he was painted into by Democrats. Senate Democrats a year ago went to him and begged him to do this. He was getting ready to do it. He threw the threat on the table. And when he was going to do it, they came back to him and said, Whoa, Mark Pryor's going to lose. Please don't do it. Now, obviously, he regrets that he waited. And now he's at the worst of all worlds. The policy that he's going to enact is actually not unpopular. It's how he's doing it that looks unpopular. And I think that's a fair criticism. I mean, it is extra constitutional, and no one really cares about process unless it's your own ox getting gored. But, you know, if you want to be intellectually consistent and decry George W. Bush's signing statements, this is not a great way to run no, presidency. it's going to be tough mind. to defend. Yeah. You mentioned, you know, the campaign guys wanted this, some of the political guys wanted the other. How much of the Obama presidency makes us question how we look at campaigns and that so much of the decisions made in a campaign is a proxy for how one governs? That is an idea, I think, that is implicit and explicit in your book. I think it's a reminder campaigns are easy to run government's hard. Yeah. You can streamline the organization, the org chart of a campaign. You can't streamline the org chart of the federal government, uh, no matter what you do. So... You can't sit here and say, we know, just by watching how a campaign is managed. Did it fool him? Did it convince him that my rhetoric can save the day or turn the tide? I do think they bought a little bit into their hype early on. He really did believe that his election was going to change at least the conversation, particularly overseas, right? That the power of a speech could do a lot, as mm-hmm. he thought his Cairo speech would do. And ditto that he really thought his election was going to at least start a different tenor of conversation in Washington. 
but I think he thought, you know, it always there was always something about him when, for instance, when they picked Joe Biden, he always said, I'm enough change. <laughs> I think he always thought that he himself, that the presence there would send the signal, hey, the country said this, they're expecting us to change our tone and One thing I want to ask you is, in the next two years, you know, what can he do? We could talk about Burnish's legacy. We could talk about mm-hmm. it just, like, to improve the country. What shits does he have left to play? You know, I think there's two ways he can go about it. I think there is part of him right now. Uh, he feels like he doesn't have a certain burden on his shoulder. shoulder. I've been talking to a lot of White House folks who are saying, he goes, you know, he now doesn't have to worry about Senate Democrats. He doesn't have to worry about House Democrats. So the question is, how long does this sort of sense of bulwark, if you want to use to, to be sort of cliche about it, that maybe he's, you know, going to feel more comfortable not being so careful and cautious uh, and worrying about what does Harry Reid need, what does Nancy Pelosi need, that maybe he he uh, gets a little more aggressive, gets a little more pushy on some of the things that he wants to do. Let's see how long that lasts. Every time he's changed, they want to have changed tenor or changed tone of how they manage the White House. It lasts like six weeks, you know, at most six weeks, and then some other crisis takes over, and they got to change change speeds. So, you know, I, I think the one benefit he's got going is I do think the Republican leadership has to prove they can govern. So I think Mitch McConnell's going to have more bills potentially for the president to sign that get through the Senate than maybe the White House anticipates. And the last question is about you. This is your first book. You are the moderator of Meet the Press before yeah. now. You weren't an opinion journalist, but there are conclusions in this book, earned conclusions. There's analysis in this book, which people can object to. You know, Meet the Press has gone through yeah. several iterations, and uh, I think <laughs> you're doing a good job. But you were criticized uh, with a comment, I think it was that, saying Alison Lundergren Grimes had yeah. disqualified herself. If you can't find a way to stand behind your party's president... You can disagree with him, but you can't answer that basic question and come across looking that ridiculous. Well, I, mean, I think she disqualified herself. Think about does, I really do. I think she disqualified. That's had to be something you navigate. What conclusions have you drawn from both wanting to be seen as a guy who is a step away and removed, but also yeah. wanting to provide analysis and conclusions? You know, uh, look, you, you, you hit on that. I, I don't think we should ever be the story. We, meaning any of us in, in journalism, you know, you don't ever want to like watching a football game, if, if the referee's the story after the game and something's wrong, right, you know, you don't feel good about the game. Mm-hmm. So uh, I certainly have that attitude. Uh, I certainly was uncomfortable during the whole uh, Grimes, uh, Grimes back and forth. So, uh, you know, I'm obviously more, more mindful that apparently some people are going to care more about some words I say than, than they should. So I'm uh, a little more mindful of that. You know, I do think you can draw a line of giving analysis without giving an ideological opinion, you know, and that without having an agenda. And so, you know, I try to walk that line. I think for some people that's a hard line to say. And I get that. Chuck Todd is the author of The Stranger, Barack Obama in the White House. He's the moderator of Meet the Press. If it's Friday, Chuck Todd's talking <laughs> on the gist. Hey, thanks, Chuck. Hey, thanks a lot. That was fun. And now the spiel, re-spiel. A week or so ago, I was talking about retail stores, and I mentioned that assailing nobody beats the whiz, remember that store, on the false promise inherent in its name. It's like being angered at Pizza Hut or a Sunglass Hut. 
Well, now Pizza Hut is under intense criticism from an unlikely source. Or maybe I should say an unlikely sauce, specifically honey sriracha. Because the criticism of Pizza Hut, the Pizza Hut you knew and loved, or at least were mildly accepting of if you were very hungry in an otherwise shut down rest stop, Pizza Hut is changing its message. The Pizza Hut critic is Pizza Hut itself. The old message, we are a hut, a hut wherein sometimes you find pizza. The new message is, if by pizza you mean some food on a roundish bread, yeah, sure, that's us. What better way to show your new message than a commercial where you don't just disassociate yourself from the failing attempt at foodstuffs, but you insult the authentic progenitors of your cuisine in the process. So Pizza Hut went to Italy and filmed the reactions of actual, they say, old Italian people to their new pizzas. So when Pizza Hut decided to take pizza where it had never been before, would Italians be okay with us totally changing pizza? Pizza Hut's 10 new crust flavors really improved pizza, right, Alfonso? No, no, no possibility. The six bold sauces really changed pizza. Why? Because it was time for an update. Uh, why? These old, uncool Italians later said they didn't understand what jeggings were. Zing. The problem with Pizza Hut is, of course, a little the pizza, a lot the hut. In fact, all businesses named after uncool dwellings are in the doldrums. Remember that well-received Radio Shack ad that aired during the Super Bowl? The 80s called. They want their store back. And then all manner of 80s icons like Hulk Hogan and Mary Lou Retton show up before the announcer says, It's time for a new Radio Shack. Radio Shack's problem is actually a little bit radio, a lot of bit shack. No one wants to dwell in a place named after a decrepit dwelling. I looked up the price of Dress Barn stock, close to a three-year low. It peaked at 24, now it's at 13. And out of concern, I looked up to see if there is a business called the Yogurt Yurt. There is Luckily, it's just a registered name to a Pennsylvania company. It doesn't seem to have actually ever existed in an actual literal retail sense, but it's not too late, Yogurt Yurt. You can go with the frozen custard cottage. That might help. Okay, next item of business. It is the rare municipal hearing that includes the level of candor heard here. As when earlier this week, the New York City Consumer Affairs Committee heard testimony from this individual. Okay, well, we'll start with the Joker. You have uh, three minutes. Okay. Yes, the Joker, the actual Batman villain. Well, not the actual Batman villain. Keith Albahey, who dresses as the Joker in Times Square and who is at the hearing to testify against the council's plan to license costume characters to help law enforcement. I talked about this on The Gist months ago, and my suggestion was get the corporations to crack down on the renegade Jokers and the renegade Elmos. But the New York City Council wants to pass a law. The law would license the costume characters, and this would help law enforcement, not according to the Joker. This straight up seems like fascism to me, and I'm not trying to be the Joker or be funny, okay? Albahey claimed that tourists harass him, and the only way to ward them off was to ask for a tip, and then sometimes they go away. But you know, wouldn't one way to get tourists to stop demanding a picture of you, wouldn't one way to be to stop dressing up as the Joker in Times Square? No, that's Joker blaming. I wear makeup three, four days a week. Women wear nail polish and lipstick. Nobody puts laws on them, okay? Women, actual women, legitimately do have it rough in Times Square. Maria DeLuca, who is 18 years old and says that her Times Square gig is the only suitable part-time job that fits in with her studies, says there's another downside to work in Times Square. I work as a Disney princess and I get surrounded by tourists that slap my butt and try to get with me. 
and that's not okay. The lawmakers want the characters to register and wear ID, and some of the people who play the characters agree. They say it would protect them. Others say it would impinge their freedoms. I think the big issue, unaddressed, but a steady undercurrent of the hearing, was the very real scourge of Elmo creep. Times Square is lousy with Elmos. We had an incident with well of our costume characters, Elmo, which kind of lost his mind. Elmo number seven held me, berated me, and um, I want you to do something about it. We're looking for Elmo 362. And weed out those few bad Elmos. Then there was Councilman Rory Lansman, who apparently thought he was trading in hypotheticals when he said, Elmo over there did X, Y, and Z. We know which Elmo that they're talking about. The answer is, it was the real Elmo. He's expounded on X. Here's Elmo talking about Z. Letter Z is taking us to a word that starts with a sound. But of the X, Y, and Z that Elmo really did, his best work was clearly with Y. This, his affecting duet with Nora Jones, a veritable search for the soul of Y. The letter Y! Oh yeah, the letter Y. We used to spell great words together. In the end, the council seemed poised to pass a bill to license the Batman, the Spider-Man, the Monster's Cookie, and the Shortcake Strawberry. Will that improve Gotham? I doubt it. But in the end, just as is the case in story and song, after the hearing was over, the Joker got away. I don't know why, why I didn't come. And that's it. Andrea Salenzi has been known to wander Columbus Circle dressed as Chester Cheetah. Joel Meyer is managing producer of Slate Podcasts. Andy Bowers is executive producer of Slate Podcasts. But you might know them as the guys inside the Zan and Jaina costumes outside Seattle's Pike Place Market, desperately trying to shape of an ICE ISDN line. You can subscribe in iTunes. While you're there, give us a review. I read all the reviews. They're very helpful. I sometimes tone down my singing based on things they say in the reviews. You could also listen in Stitcher. Sign up for daily emails via slate.com slash gist email or use the app Yo to be notified when we're ready to post. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. I am Mike Pascashore. That is my civilian identity. But I'm usually out there hustling for tips either as Grape Ape, The Funky Phantom, or Muttley from Catch That Pigeon. Haven't gotten one yet. Gotta refine the pitch. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Why didn't come? I don't know why. Why didn't